Our readings are particularly hard for me this week. Our community has lost some long-standing members in the last week or so, and that is absolutely painful for us. When I began here at St. Michael's eight years or so ago, I did a significant number of funerals. I do more now because I'm firmly planted in pastoral care, so that's part of my job description. Now, it may be part of what I am paid for, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's such an honor to walk with people in their last days. And because of my tenure, it's personal now in a way that was not so when I began here. How, how could it be? I have a certain tenure among the people here, deeper roots, deeper friendships. And so this is why the first psalm that we heard brought me up short this week. Now, we all are devoted readers of Scripture. I'm a devoted reader of Scripture. I offer it as a balm to people who are grieving, who are in trouble. I also seek it myself when things don't go well in my own life, in my own relationships. So when one reads the first psalm, the words may make one believe there are two distinct choices to be made. The one who walks with the Lord is good, and those who meander kind of like a fence line, well, they'll get theirs eventually. What hit me was that the two funerals I officiated had honored people who lived by all intents and purposes, by everything observable. They lived very close to God. In other words, my experience, our experience with life does not appear consonant with the psalm. So many so-called bad people live extraordinarily amazing lives, seemingly free what brings most of us down. And we also know that the decent among us can face precisely the opposite. Now, this is no revelation, of course. We know this to be true in our hearts. The sun shines on the wicked and the good. And so what's really the issue? Why would the psalm provide what we believe to be a vision at odds with our own experience? Now, it took me some while, some years, to conclude that the Scripture, all Scriptures, are really a time machine of sorts. When we read the scriptures, we are going back to another era. When we read this particular psalm, Psalm 1, we are remembering a time over 2,500 years removed from ours. This has consequences. For example, when my grandmother maternal grandmother, Alice, used to invite my family, my mother, my father, myself, to the farm for Saturday dinner. 
back in the 70s. Anyone want to guess what time the food was served for dinner on the farm? So then dinner, of course, to a person on a farm, that hour would have been somewhere around noon. It was supper that was the evening meal. And so when I spoke to Alice, even at the age of 11, I had to use her language if I wanted to understand her, if I wanted to be close to her. And so I think I'm at odds in this psalm with the word happy. So there's four current definitions of the word happy as found in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. The first one is favored by luck or fortune. Fair enough. The second, notably fitting, effective, or well adapted. The third is characterized by well-being. And number four is characterized by a dazed, irresponsible state. Happy? These are okay definitions, but none of which help us get to the bottom of this reading from the first psalm. What does help us is understanding that the Hebrew word for happy is translated precise and accurately, but the, pro the problem is that the psalmist didn't exactly have our definition of happiness in mind. And with so many years between us, how could that be possible? So scripturally, the word happy, being happy, rested on roughly three things. First, it was being in the presence of God. Second, it was the ability, the honor to be able to read the scriptures. And the third element of happiness is being able to apply what was read, what was found out about God in community, and applying that to life. living a life worthy of God's notice or a good attempt at that. These words are so powerful because we recognize they represent that which is deeply meaningful in life. You see, just because we live in this amazing country and in a very first world city and in a very, very first world group of zip codes, we tend, in general, to have more possessions than a good chunk of the rest of the world. And yet we know, at some level, that possessions are not lasting and do not necessarily bring happiness. They bring convenience, to be sure, but not necessarily happiness. In fact, we can come to understand possessions as maybe even sort of a, a millstone around our neck when they began to own us rather than we own them. And those who seek the Lord try to make sense of their world given this thing. And it is God who seeks each of us to define what is real, what is lasting, and what has true meaning in life. See, seen in this way, the psalmist lets us know that the happy life, from God's perspective, 
is one of being grounded in that which is real. Grounded in God. Grounded in family and friends and not that which is transient. And so just to be clear, possessions are not bad in any way. They were meant to be for us. We were meant to labor and enjoy the gifts of our labor, the gifts of creation. You see, the trouble begins when we define our happiness through our possessions. The psalmist is just saying, you can do that if you want. But God, family, friends is where true happiness lies. Each of us are called to create and enjoy places of warmth, of peace, of forgiveness and charity in this journey of ours. And to help us in this mission, the psalmist is inviting us to simply check our priorities. That's all this is. Check our priorities. And give us the opportunity to align or realign our happiness in this life with the priorities of the one who gives life to all. I don't know. This is how I've worked it out. You could have a different path. God calls to each of us. I believe we're here to enjoy each other, enjoy creation, enjoy the things that our intellect can produce, but simply never forgetting what is true and good. What creates actual happiness in our time here on earth. Amen.